We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Throughout the Lenten season, the Church has prepared us step by step for the wondrous mysteries connected with Holy Week, and in particular, what is known as the Sacred Triduum, those three special days, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Vigil, Holy Saturday. It's like a crescendo, if you will, a building up, little by little, of the mystery and the liturgy until its loudest point, if you will, with the Easter Vigil, which is, in a sense, the mother of all liturgies. And yet, despite this crescendo, this building up, building up, there's also a stripping down of our Christian lives and the liturgy going on. Think about it. We began this journey, if you will, uh, on Septuagesima Sunday, okay, a few weeks before Lent even began. We're already beginning preparation for Lent by having violet being worn at the Sunday Masses. The Gloria is gone from the Sunday Masses in Septuagesima. Then you also have the, the, the end of that A word, which we buried, right, on the first Vespers of Septuagesima. So we're already going to strip down the liturgy. And then we entered into Lent. And as we entered into Lent, we began to have even more stripping away unbleached candles, uh, which are more dark. Uh, and of course, instead of having the brass, the gold colored candlesticks, we had the nickel plated candlesticks, a further stripping down, a further penitential aspect. And of course, you had no relics on the altar during Lent for the most part outside of the great feasts. Um, and of course, up until Passion Tide, uh, the last two weeks, which we are presently in, Passion Tide, statues were covered, no Gloria Patri at Mass, no Utica May Psalm at the beginning of the Mass. Um, the first week of Passion Tide recounts the last year of our Lord's blessed life, while the second week of Passion Tide recounts his final week, Holy Week, also known as the Great Week. You combine this liturgical stripping away with our dietary stripping away. We have become hopefully less and less uh, in terms of rich, luxurious foods. We have, uh, even in Septuagesima, perhaps we started getting rid of certain types of foods, the meats and the cheeses and the eggs, and we began to sort of chip away at those particular items. Uh, during Lent, hopefully we did do some serious penance in regards to our dietary needs. Um, and then, of course, Passion Tide perhaps even increased our penance of prayer, fasting, and works of mercy and sacrifices and so forth. But now the great week has begun. It started with Palm Sunday. It is a week of mourning, 
we mourn the loss of our dearest Lord. He died for us upon the Holy Mother Cross. Holy Mother Church, in a sense, is like a widow, that her bridegroom is not visibly with her, albeit he's present in the Holy Eucharist, he's not visibly with her. He is naturally extended, present in the glory of heaven. So in a sense, the, the church is not just a mother, not just a bride of Christ, but also experiences widowhood. But it's not just mourning, it's also a week of redemption, a week of, 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 of salvation. It's a redemptive time in which the work of redemption, which ends in the victory of the cross and the resurrection, are so intimately united. The liturgy, and brother will talk about this, the liturgy mixes, if you will, sorrow and joy, crucifixion and victory, death and resurrection. Holy Week with then will then reach its high point with the sacred triduum, Holy Thursday coming up tomorrow, Good Friday, Easter Vigil. This evening we have one of our good seminarians, of course they're all good, one of our good seminarians, namely Brother Cavan, with us to discuss the liturgies of Holy Week, in particular, the pre-1955 liturgies. And we'll explain what that means for those who may not be aware. Now, this might be a bit confusing. Even for traditional Catholics, you see, the liturgical revolution we saw with the Novus Ordo Mass of late 1969 had a precursor. Something was already there with the introduction of the new Holy Week liturgy under the papacy of Pius XII. We'll call it the Pacellian Pius XII liturgies post-1955 Holy Week liturgies. You could call it the Bugnini Holy Week, in other words. Here in our parish since, 19, since 2017, we have done the old, old Holy Week liturgy as opposed to the new old right Holy Week liturgy. <laughs> Well-known author who recently experienced the pre-1955 liturgy had this, had this to say. See, again, he just, he just experienced this new, for him was new, this pre-1955 liturgy. This is what the author said, quote, I had expected to be impressed, but I was blown away. I had expected to be bewildered, but I was dazzled and provoked. I had expected to see the Roman Rite in its pre-modern richness, and I saw a revelation of glory, unquote. And then finally, a priest who has celebrated both forms of Holy Week, the pre-55 and the 55, 1955 Holy Week liturgy, commented recently, quote, the old liturgical rites drive home the integral and essential connection between the sacrifice of the cross and the Eucharistic sacrifice. The new Pacellian versions, that is the 1955 Holy Week, the new Pacellian versions systematically downplay this connection between sacrifice of the cross and Eucharistic sacrifice. The old liturgies, he continues, are coherent in what they contain and what they present. The new versions are piecemeal and chaotic. 
In fact, some of the same people who worked on the renewed Holy Week 1955 liturgy later worked on the Novus Ordo. And when they got around to fixing some of the problems they themselves had introduced, they blamed the problems not on their bungling of the work, but on the old mass. Unquote. Returning to the observations of that traditional author and professor I mentioned earlier, he stated the following about the return of the pre-55 Holy Week liturgy. I'll end with this. Thanks be to God, he writes, not only is the usus antiquior, the more ancient usage, coming back to our churches, and believe me, the pre-1955 liturgy is growing fast, coming back to our churches, but the authentic rites of the usus antiquior are returning as well, not their neo-Tridentine replacements. At the end of 70 years of liturgical captivity, beginning around 1948, that's when Anabali Bognini came into office. With Pius XII's creation of a liturgical reform commission, we are in a position to say with the psalmist, who shall give out of Zion the salvation of Israel? And the Lord shall have turned away the captivity's people Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. And we are glad that we have an opportunity to have the pre-1955 liturgy, thanks to people like Friar Anthony, who was very helpful to us in introducing it. And Friar Anthony uh, helped train Brother Cavan. And Friar Anthony is not uh, around this, this year. He's, he's down in Ava, Missouri with, uh, with uh, Father Jambon, doing the liturgy there for the nuns in uh, uh, the Midwest. So we miss him, but uh, we have a MC that uh, is most capable. So, Brother Kevin, maybe you could uh, just uh, maybe introduce yourself a little bit. People know you, I think many, but maybe for those who might not know you, to maybe just tell, you know, where you're from originally and your family and, and maybe, you know, your interest in the priesthood and liturgy and where you are in your studies. Sure. So my name is Brother Kevin Shannon, for those of you who do not know me. And uh, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was homeschooled. And growing up, I wanted to be a priest for many years since I was about five years old. And uh, I would play mass. And so I guess that interest in liturgy sort of started young. And then as I got into my, my teen years, I was attracted to the Latin mass and my family started attending it frequently. So uh, eventually I started attending that every Sunday with my family. And we moved to Our Lady of Lords Parish uh, awesome. in 2018. And I joined the missionaries of St. John the Baptist that summer. And right now I am in my third year of formation, my second year of temporary vows. And I'm finishing my last semester of seminary with Holy Apostles, uh, preparing hopefully to go to the um, Oratory of St. Philip Neri in the fall. So that's where I am right now. And uh, presently, Father has asked me to assist with the Holy Week liturgies. So I've enjoyed studying that and preparing for that. Very good. So what, 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 what's, what is your sort of interest in liturgy? Why does it sort of um, interest you? I mean, it would interest anybody, I guess, who has a desire for the priesthood. But 
is there something about the Roman rite liturgy, the ancient liturgy that sort of attracts you uh, to study more about it? Well, certainly in general, um, liturgy is the, is the prayer of the church. So uh, no matter what the, no matter who the person is who's offering the liturgy, there's always objectively something there that is benefiting the faithful, benefiting the church. It's called the intrinsic value of, for example, the mass. Um, whereas, let's say the the state of the person offering the mass would be the 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 extrinsic value. Um, so, in general, liturgy is always efficacious for the church, and so we have to trust that Holy Mother Church has given us these prayers, in particular, whether it's the mass or the divine office, uh, as very primary tools for us to not only learn about the faith but also the highest ways to worship God. Um, so it's primarily the authority of the church that is backing that up. And of course, other devotions as well, like let's say the rosary or devotions to certain saints or the or guardian angels. And ultimately all those devotions find their seed form somewhere in the liturgy, not just their feast days, but just in general, think about how Our Lady is all over the liturgy. She's in the Roman canon. Um, so that's very important. And then, of course, the Roman rite in particular is the, the rite that came to us directly from St. Peter, which is why, you know, the Pope has always held on to the Roman canon, uh, which we believe St. Peter himself wrote. So uh, that's very important. So the, the, the liturgy as the primary prayer of the church, it has the authority of, of the, uh, the Pope, the Popes of the Ages. And so that's our, our the primary tool given to us in our prayer life to come closer to Christ. Good. So with that being said about liturgy and the importance of the public prayer of the church, what is it about these liturgies? Why is Holy Week the biggest of liturgies? Is it, and also, is it also the most complex? Is, is, it, the, is it the most sort of involved as well? Well, definitely, definitely both. So uh, the Holy, Holy Week is the most important part of the liturgical year. And consequently, its liturgies are more complex, more involved, more difficult, and quite frankly, much longer and can be more tedious. But the church is trying to ask us to enter into the life of Christ during this week rather than simply observing it as a historical thing of the past. And as we'll see later, this is part of what the what we might call the New Old Holy Week has tried to um, get rid of. For example, on Good Friday, if you go to the pre-55 the pre liturgy, you hear the passion introduced as the passion of Jesus Christ. Whereas in the 55 liturgy, the newer one, it says the history of the passion of Christ at the very beginning. So we're doing away with this idea that we're actually living the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, so this is why, in particular, the pre-55 liturgy is very important for traditionalists. But just in general, to go back to our initial question, um, Holy Week is certainly the most important time of the year for, uh, for a Catholic. And at one time, the Triduum actually used to be Holy Days of Obligation. And it was about the 1600s when that was taken away from us. And many observed that the devotion of the faithful got much lower at that time in history during the Triduum, and they started to treat those days like other days of the year. And the church tried to bring those days back by adding other devotions, like, for example, devotions to Our Lady of Sorrows on the Good Friday liturgy. But they realized no matter what they did, they couldn't recapture that original spirit 
And the reason why is because nothing can compare with the prayer of the church, the liturgy, and in this case, Holy Week. Good. So maybe you could um, run through a little bit, maybe some of the history if you want, or um, maybe some of the spiritual aspects or symbolism, um, and maybe just some of the differences uh, between pre-55 and 55 beyond, beginning with Palm Sunday and maybe Holy Thursday, Good Friday and Easter Vigil. And maybe you could just sort of go there, but maybe begin with the Mass we already actually had, which was Palm Sunday. And, and basically some of the history of that, the, the, the symbolism of that, and maybe some distinctions between pre-55 and the 55 liturgy in the Old Rite. Sure. So just to, in general, for Holy Week in general as a whole, uh, one particular thing that's very interesting to note is that the most sacred times in the liturgical year are the times that are the liturgies that the church has been most reluctant to touch. So normally those are seen as the more penitential days. So in the Holy Week liturgies, we see a lot of remnants from just a simple daily mass that would have happened many centuries ago. And the reason why those are still there only during Holy Week and not on other days of the year is because when the church uh, by the Holy Ghost had this organic development of the liturgy in the Missal, certain things may have developed over time just for any day, but on Holy Week in particular, the church was reluctant to change even those ordinary common everyday things. So for example, on Good Friday, we see the ministers prostrate themselves in front of the altar. And this actually used to be something that would have been done before every mass every day. And uh, the stripping of the altars is the same thing. Now, some might say that this gets rid of the spiritual significance behind these actions. And the reason why I'm not sure that's the case, why I don't think that's the case is because what we're seeing here is simply the sacredness of Holy Week. So the Holy Ghost is using this historical development to bring out the symbolism, but the fact is, these things did used to be part of the daily mass, and it's showing us that how reluctant the church has been to change those liturgies. Um, and of course, the newer Holy Week kept some of those things, but still got rid of others. And we'll, we can get into that later. But just in general, we have to understand how reluctant the church has been to change these liturgies. Um, another example that would be helpful is you probably noticed if you were at mass at the high mass on Palm Sunday the uh, deacon and, uh, and subdeacon or straw subdeacon were uh, what we call folded chasubles. So they weren't a chasuble that had the full length in the front, but it was cut sort of at the chest. And that has a spiritual symbolism of penance. But historically, what happened was in the early days of the church, all three ministers at Solemn High Mass would wear chasubles. But the chasubles were so large that if there wasn't someone with the minister to hold the chasuble up, it would get in their way while performing their duties. So the deacon and subdeacon didn't have someone next to them all the time to keep their chasuble up. Consequently, they would take their chasubles off and fold them up. And, well, I get, I, in general, they would simply fold them up. And then when the deacon went to perform more involved actions, he would actually remove his chasuble entirely and fold it across his chest which is where the idea of what we call the broad stole uh, came from, which is what Father Sean wore on 
um, Sunday during the chanting of the Passion, for example. And of course, so we see here a very practical historical development that the chasuble got in the way of what they were doing, so they would fold it up. But the Holy Ghost has brought out of that sort of the idea of, you know, a penitential liturgy for us now. And so when we see that now, we think of penance. Um, but back to my initial point, the reason why that's important for understanding how the liturgy, the, in particular during Holy Week, uh, has not been something the church wants to just simply change all of a sudden, is, is seen very clearly here, that this is the most penitential time when these folded chasubles are worn. <clears throat> and so we see a remnant of that. So hopefully that makes sense, but you'll see those again on Good Friday <clears throat> and a little bit at the beginning of Easter Vigil. Um, and then another thing to watch for actually throughout this entire week, as Father Shannon already mentioned, is that you will notice there are themes of joy and sorrow that sort of overlap each other throughout the liturgies. So if we take Easter Vigil, for example, uh, the priest and the deacon and subdeacon begin in purple vestments or violet. And eventually you'll notice outside at the fire, the deacon will take off his purple chasuble, his folded chasuble, and put on a white dalmatic. Uh, now this makes us think of something joyful. But then later on, he puts his purple chasuble back on. So throughout this Easter Vigil liturgy, we're seeing this fluctuation before, between something joyful and something sorrowful. And later on, we see this again, when before the gospel, the priest uh, intones what at this moment, I'll simply call the A word. I think we all know what that is. Uh, but yet we're singing what we call a tract before the gospel, which is traditionally only used during penitential times. So why is that? Well, that's because the Easter Vigil Mass is in one sense simply an anticipation of the resurrection of Christ, although once the Gloria happens, Easter certainly, you know, is present. But we don't have the pox because Christ has not yet come on Easter Sunday evening and given us peace, saying peace be with you in the upper room. So we see this fluctuation throughout the entire uh, liturgy because in the spiritual life, uh, God is outside of time. And we experience this all the time that sometimes we're going through deep suffering and other times, uh, times of great joy. And speaking of overlapping, uh, it's very common in traditional liturgies to see many things going on at the same time. Uh, for example, you might see that the priest recites his sanctus while the choir is chanting it. And then when the priest is done reciting his, his sanctus, he doesn't wait for the choir to finish singing before he starts the Roman canon. So there's an overlapping of prayers and actions because God is outside of time. So things in the past, the present, and the future to him are all one. And in the liturgy, we're being taken up into the uh, prayer of the angels, and we get a taste of that. Uh, with that being said, a lot of the liturgical uh, reformers, whom we'll call revolutionaries, like to do away with that idea. And they want to make us think that things have to happen one at a time, that as one thing has finished, something else begins. So in the Novus Ordo, for example, if you've been there in the past, you'll know that their idea of silence is a bit different than it is in the traditional mass. So our silence is that the father whispers his prayers, his, you know, the Roman canon, and we're praying, we're offering our sacrifice to his. But in the Novus Ordo, he might pause for a moment and everyone pauses and we're all sort of waiting to know what's going to happen next. But in the Latin mass, that's not the sort of silence we have. So that's something else to watch for is this overlapping. 
uh, in the liturgy. Good, brother. Um, in terms of, just to go back just a little bit, um, what you're saying, I think, is this, is that the liturgies that we're seeing this Holy Week, the pre-55 especially, are really signaling back to the most ancient of the church's liturgies in which you're really seeing how it would have been done in the ancient days because the church, as you said, was reluctant to touch anything especially connected with Holy Week. It was sort of, so we're seeing the real liturgy of Rome in its pristine sort of, I guess, uh, pre pristine element. It, 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 it's, this is the way they would have prayed uh, in very ancient days. Correct. So for even these liturgies like the Palm Sunday procession, uh, you know, when you research it, you can find old uh, documents and manuscripts of how they would do their processions, even from the 900s. And they're incredibly similar to what we have now uh, in the pre-55. And of course, small things may have developed over time that are slightly different, but in essence, it's the same thing. Uh, and so, yes, it is certainly their, the reluctance of the church to change this. And uh, I think we all understand as humans that we get attached to certain special things at you know, special places and times and people. And in the liturgy, we have that sort of thing going on during Holy Week, even that, that even as, as, as a church, is a, uh, the church has given us this special heritage and we're reluctant to just get rid of it. And in fact, we should enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned something important too, I think, is that this is not just a sort of remembering back fondly about what Christ accomplished and what he did for us and for our salvation. And not just sort of thinking back with nostalgia this is something which is the history of the passion. This is something which we're really entering into the mysteries. And so would you say that liturgy sort of isn't just recalling, but making present the actual mysteries themselves that Christ brought about through his work of redemption? Oh, certainly. As, as we all know at Mass, of course, that is the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, even though it's an unbloody sacrifice. It, the effects are identical. So uh, even the mass, which is the center of the liturgy of the church shows us that. Um, and we've been talking a lot about history and Holy Week in particular. Palm Sunday reminds me of that, especially the procession. Uh, in times past, the people would process with the blessed sacrament at times, perhaps to refute a, a heresy uh, that let's say, for example, someone thought that the blessed sacrament wasn't actually Christ like Berengarius, and the people would persist on Palm Sunday with the Blessed Sacrament uh, to refute that heresy, but also to understand that Christ is really in their midst, and they wanted to make that palpable, uh, or they might put a bishop on a donkey and have him ride in the procession as the figure of Christ. So this is good to sort of, for our people to remember that, this, again, it's not just nostalgia that we're going through here. This is a real making present of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. And it's going to be our participation ever more involved with uh, these mysteries and having them ever more be reproduced in us. So there's a real work that we should do during this 
this, this holy week in terms of our own liturgical um, uh, participation, to truly be prayerful in that. So, brother, maybe if you want to maybe pick out some, maybe some highlights that um, you have come to appreciate about whether it's Palm Sunday or Holy Thursday or Good Friday or Easter Vigil or the, um, you know, the, the sepulcher, um, the altar of repose, uh, those sorts of things. What, what are some things that sort of strike you about the Holy Week liturgies, in particular the pre-1955? Sure. Well, in particular, I guess we could begin with Palm Sunday. So we, if you came to the High Mass, you should be familiar with that already. Um, and uh, even if you didn't, of course, we have the reading of the Passion at Low Mass as well. Uh, so the procession, uh, well, first of all, the blessing of palms has always been uh, a part of this liturgy. And uh, the pre-55 liturgy has what's called a dry mass uh, in which the priest blesses palms. Now, part of the historical roots of this would be uh, that in the old days, the people would have two masses, one in which they bless the palms, and then they would have a procession, stop at another church, and then have a second mass. Uh, however, this also brings us back to, as I was saying, this idea that things sort of overlap in the liturgy, since God is outside of time. And basically, a dry mass is something that looks a lot like a mass, but it's not a mass. There's something quasi-sacrificial uh, about it. And so in this case, on Palm Sunday, the priest begins with something that seems a lot like an introit, with the choir singing the same thing in the background, uh, Hosanna Filio David. And then we have what's like a collect and an epistle and a, gra a, a tract. And then we have the reading of the gospel of, the, of Palm Sunday when Christ comes into Jerusalem. Uh, then we have a sanctus and a preface, well, a preface first and then a sanctus. And then we have something that seems kind of like a, a, a consecration. Obviously, the palms aren't actually consecrated, but it kind of looks like a consecration. As Father reads, uh, I believe, five prayers and blesses the palms, uh, which, by the way, in the, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but basically it looks kind of like a mass, so it's, uh, it's very interesting. And like I said, part of the roots of that is they used to have um, two masses on this day, but it's also important because, uh, like I said, it brings about that idea of, you know, the sacrificial death of Christ. And of course, the palms do symbolize that joy of welcoming Christ into Jerusalem. But of course, later on, he, it's there that they uh, crucified him. So uh, if we were to look more closely at the pre-55 dry mass here, this does not happen in the, in the 55, in the new old uh, Holy Week liturgies. And all notion of the sacrifice or of, actually, they get rid of all of the prayers that refer to casting out uh, the demons. So if you read the translations of the blessing of the palms, it's very much trying to get rid of the influence of the, uh, the demons. But in the new Holy Week, there's none of that. In fact, Father uh, would face the people and bless the palms facing the people at a table in the sanctuary in the new old Holy Week for Palm Sunday. As you can see, there's an opening up of the doors here to, as Father Shannon was mentioning, later on the Novus Ordo. And there were the revolutionaries, liturgical revolutionaries, knew exactly what they were doing when they did this. So they put the priest in a red coke rather than a violet one uh, to emphasize more the kingship of Christ. And it's not that in and of itself it's wrong to think about the kingship of Christ on this day, but violet is also a very royal color. 
so, but it still gets across the idea that it's a penitential time. Once again, that there's a little bit of joy that Christ is entering Jerusalem, but also sorrow that the same uh, people that are welcoming him with joy are going to reject him a few days later. So the, the new Old Holy Week, if I want to keep calling it that, uh, basically is opening up the doors for this liturgical revolution and really began it and got rid of, you know, these prayers to avoid uh, the influence of the demons and began to have the priest face the people with his back to the Blessed Sacrament. And they got rid of the dry mass for blessing the palms. And of course, it shortens things too, makes things a bit quicker. And if you read a lot of the commentary on why they did what they did in the newer Old Holy Week, a lot of times it was for the sake of saving time. Um, so going back to the Palm Sunday liturgy, of course, you receive your palms kneeling at the communion rail. That stays the same for uh, both Holy Weeks, for both, uh, both missiles. And then there's procession. Now, something that's different about this procession is that when the procession comes to the doors of the church, everyone pauses and the subdeacon, well, first there's some chanting that goes on. So there's a, a special uh, hymn called Gloria Laus et Honor. And the, there are some cantors standing on the inside of the church doors and some standing on the outside of the church doors. And they chant back and forth. This is like the angels in, on the other side of the gates of heaven. Uh, and then, of course, those of us who are still trying to make it to heaven on the other side. And we're seeking entrance into the kingdom. This also shows us the coldness of the Jews in rejecting Christ or their hesitancy to let him in, if you will. Uh, and eventually you see the subdeacon strike the doors of the church with a cross uh, three times. Now this symbolizes how obviously it's the cross that brings us into the gates, you know, beyond the gates of heaven. So that entire uh, ceremony is not in the newer old Holy Week. That is completely taken out. And once again, we're getting rid of um, these ceremonies that emphasize the cross. And um, so that's, that's a very interesting part of the old, old Holy Week that is one of the most striking parts, no pun intended, about the Palm Sunday liturgy in pre-55. Yeah, I think that's important that, you know, that, that dry mass, which is part of the pre-55, where the palms are, and in a way, you know, as, as you know from your, your studies, in a way they are consecrated, not that they change their substance, but they're set apart, right? They're set apart, which what that's what consecration means. And they're sort of given a, um, a treatment, even though it's a material element, uh, they're giving a, a treatment, which is sort of setting them aside for something that can be a, a true sacramental. Um, and so that's a very wonderful part. And for, for us who are priests, myself and Father Sean, uh, having done these liturgies, both post-55 or 55 and pre-55. And I, you know, we also used to do the Novus Ordo too. So we, we've seen it all. Um, we're, we are amazed when we enter into these pre-1955 liturgies, Palm Sunday and of course, Holy Thursday and beyond. So it's, it's very special for us. And we thank the good Lord that uh, brother is, is interested in some of these things. Is there anything else you want to bring up about Palm Sunday that sort of um, is sort of interesting? I love the, what you mentioned with, you know, the, the door being closed, 
here Christ comes in a sense to take possession of Jerusalem. Um, you know, when he came in on the, on the donkey, but he's also taking possession of the heaven that he has gained. Um, but I like the fact you also the, the hesitancy, waiting for the exchange between angels above in heaven, represented by those inside, and the church militant represented by those singing outside. The hesitancy is also that, in a sense, the Jewish elite, the Jewish leaders did not want him to be recognized and to take possession. Um, so I, I'm glad you brought that out. But anything else about Palm Sunday that, that, that strikes you? Well, uh, one thing on a more practical note, and obviously it does influence more than just the practical, is uh, the, uh, the other thing about Palm Sunday that's different is, of course, the reading of the Passion. And even if you were at a low mass, you would have noticed that Father read the, uh, uh, pa the part of the Passion that includes the Last Supper. And this was, of course, taken out in the newer uh, rite, or in the newer, newer form, so that it's a little bit quicker and you just get right into the Passion. But of course, the liturgy is trying to show us in combining the two that it's one sacrifice. It's simply that, of course, uh, one is unbloody and one is bloody, but it's the same sacrifice and you have the same effects. Mm -hmm. So that's something else that's very important about the, the two. Uh, but one other thing, too, for Palm Sunday that at least reminds us of is uh, oftentimes we forget about um, the chant going on during the liturgy, but every bit of it is there for a reason. And it was all put there for a very, very particular purpose. So I would encourage you all sometime this week or as we're going through the liturgies to read the translations of what those um, chants are, even if it's, you know, before the liturgy begins or throughout the day. If you look at those, there's a reason why the church has put those there. Uh, so like Palm Sunday, uh, reminding us of that when we're at the doors and the choir is chanting back and forth uh, between the closed doors, there's a reason why that particular chant was chosen for that particular portion of the liturgy. And this particular one, Gloria Laus et Honor. Right. So I think um, we have booklets available that are for the pre-1955, for all the holy days that they're, they're available, these booklets. But also, what is the website that Friar has? Have you, do you know the website address that people might be able to look up in terms of even having it online? Not off the top of my head, but I can uh, find it right now so that I, I, I should be able to find it quickly. Um, I think it's pre-1955 Holy Week, something like that. Um, yeah, I'll put it in the uh, chat. I don't know if everyone can see that, but it's pre-1955holyweek.com. Pre okay. So say it again, pre-1955holyweek.com. Yes. Okay. And uh, yeah, so that has the, a lot of resources too. Um, and I think there's also some spiritual descriptions, is, isn't there, besides just the translations uh, for people to follow? Uh, in the books, yes. Yes, there good. Spiritual commentary as well on the symbols and, and whatnot that we see. And we have those booklets available for people to follow along. Um, so... Brother, maybe if you could take us into maybe the Triduum a little bit um, and some of the things that strike you historically, symbolically, uh, and then maybe pre-55 versus 55 Holy Week. Um, some, some things that strike you about the, the, these next three days coming up. 
Sure. So in general, these three days are always seen as like one sort of action or one, one event. So you'll notice that it seems like Holy Thursday and Good Friday just break off and are left hanging. That's because they're, so to speak, uh, picking up where the last one left off, if you want to put it that way. So it's one event. We're remembering the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, and these mysteries are always seen together as Catholics. So as we know, uh, the Triduum begins on Holy Thursday, tomorrow, uh, and we will be chanting as I believe Father mentioned we'll be chanting Tenebrae in the morning, where we will um, begin the ceremonies for that. So the Mass in the evening that you all will hopefully attend uh, for us will be a solemn high Mass, which always brings out more of the, the symbols as well. Uh, it's, a general, it's generally a normal high Mass. Things aren't particularly different about it. However, there is one difference we see, that there is no pox. Uh, and that is because on Holy Thursday, Judas betrayed Christ with a kiss, so that kiss of peace is not exchanged on Holy Thursday. Uh, but then eventually we see after the Agnus Dei that an extra chalice is brought up to the altar. Now in the pre-55 Holy Week, uh, a chalice is used for this extra host, which will be used on the morrow on Good Friday, uh, rather than a ciborium. So normally in the, in the newer Old Holy Week, a, a ciborium is used, and the priest will Good Friday. We'll talk about why later. Um, and so as a result, he only has to consecrate one extra host for Good Friday. But he puts it in a chalice, not a ciborium. And there are two reasons for this. Uh, one it could be more practical, namely that on the next day he's going to use unconsecrated wine to give the appearance of a sacrifice still, even though the Mass doesn't actually take place, so he'll need a chalice. But it's also spiritual. Uh, we could think of the chalice that Christ received in the Garden of Gethsemane on Holy Thursday night uh, uh, that the angel presented to him to console him, as well as the chalice on Good Friday, if you will, of the uh, uh, his drinking, so to speak, he didn't drink from a chalice literally, but of course he, he said, I thirst. And then they gave him uh, vinegar and he said it is finished and expired. So there's a lot of symbolism there with just having a chalice. Uh, but it is put on the altar. And after Father receives communion under both species, the chalice is then used to repose the extra host for tomorrow, for the next day. It's veiled, but left on the altar. And you'll notice that Father will make a couple of extra genuflections at the end of Mass. That's not because he's confused or because he's making mistakes. That's on purpose. When the Blessed Sacrament is on the altar, uh, at the end of Mass, he adds genuflections out of special reverence. So you will see the last Gospel from John chapter 1, which is omitted, I believe, in the newer Old Holy Week. He actually genuflects to the Blessed Sacrament when he says, Verbum Cotopactum Est. Uh, so he's recognizing the Blessed Sacrament throughout the entire end of Mass. In any case, he'll eventually proceed down to the, the foot of the altar and change his vestments to a, a coke, which you see him wear for benediction. And there are two thuribles. It's very rare in the liturgy we see two thuribles with incense, two censers. Uh, but during Holy Week, we see that on Holy Thursday and Good Friday. So we're, so to speak, like... Uh, 
we're showing Christ double the reverence on these days. Uh, we're making a special reparation to him. Um, so eventually Father will process to the back of the church with the Blessed Sacrament. And we put the Blessed Sacrament in what we call a Holy Sepulchre or an altar of repose. Now, historically, uh, this developed because in the old days, not every church had the Blessed Sacrament. So on Holy Thursday, the people would get extra excited because the Blessed Sacrament was coming to their church and they would put up extra flowers and candles and stay up at night to keep vigil because Christ was at their church. Now the Holy Ghost took this um, very historical reality and preserved it in the church so that even when the Blessed Sacrament is permanently in the churches, uh, we still decorate a special altar off to the side for the Blessed Sacrament. And we can think of how Christ has been taken away from us uh, as he was taken from the apostles on Holy Thursday night. But then at, on, at midnight, the priest put, takes the Blessed Sacrament away or locks up the church so that people cannot continue adoring. And this is what the apostles experienced on Holy Thursday night when Christ was arrested by Judas. So once again, the church is helping us to really live this passion and death of Christ. So we may not all be able to stay up until midnight, but we should certainly stay for some time after Mass if we're able in adoration uh, to make reparation. So in general, that's, that's Holy Thursday. And there's not a ton of a difference with the Mass itself, as I said. It's mostly the procession at the end and the Blessed Sacrament uh, in the Sepulchre. Uh, the newer Old Holy Week hasn't changed as much on Holy Thursday, but like I said, there is a slight difference with the, the chalice rather than a ciborium, for instance. What, in terms of calling it the sepulcher, so that's, we use that term for, obviously, the, our Lord was buried in a tomb, in, in a sepulcher, right? And of course, the most famous church in Christendom is the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, where Christ was buried, and of course, Christ rose from the dead, too. Um, so why do you think the emphasis is on calling it the sepulcher for the pre-55 and the verse of the altar of repose for a ciborium filled with hosts, which will be used for Good Friday's communion service, which you do not have in the pre-55. There is no communion service in the pre-55. This is one host. And that's consecrated Holy Thursday, but then it's consumed only by the priest. There's no communion. Even though it's the first Friday, which it's going to be, you're not going to have communion that day. So what, what is it about that focus in on the sepulcher? Um, yes. Well, certainly the, uh, the sepulcher makes us think of death, and death should make us think as Catholics of sacrifice. So certainly there's a sacrificial uh, element that's being brought to mind here rather than simply an idea that uh, the Eucharist is just a meal by which we, you know, get together and have, uh, you know, experience some sort of unity in Christ. Uh, so Mass is certainly a sacrifice. And Good Friday, we don't offer Mass on Good Friday actually at all, even though Father receives the host. Uh, there's a sort of fear and reverence we have of offering the Mass on the day that Christ died. And of course, it is the risen Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, so I'm not quite 100% certain why we call it a sepulcher uh, per se, but certainly it would make sense that we call it 
the sepulchre from it from the standpoint of thinking of sacrifice and the the newer old holy week tried to get rid of the idea of sacrifice on on good friday and emphasize as you said the communion service and um we can talk about that certainly as well the differences there but it's it's more focus on on receiving communion right so maybe take us into good friday a little bit and maybe um are there some things that the, the liturgy of good friday pre-55 um, that you would want to maybe focus in on symbolically, historically, or perhaps a distinction or contrast with the 55 and beyond liturgy? Certainly. So um, the very first thing to notice is actually the title. So the Newer Old Holy Week says that the Good Friday liturgy is basically just a solemn, oh, what do we call it, the solemn liturgical action. And in the old, old Holy Week, the pre-55 Missal, it's called the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified. Now, this is a little fishy if we don't fully understand what's going on, because the word Mass makes us think of uh, a double consecration and uh, the priest's double communion. Now, on Good Friday, in the pre-55 liturgy, we see that a priest uses a host that he consecrated the day before, and then he pours wine into a chalice, but he never consecrates it. Uh, and just as a side note, if you're ever reading any of the uh, writings about Holy Week, and you note that uh, there's some emphasis on the consecration of the wine by the little particle, the host being dropped into it, over time the popes clarify that that's not true, that the wine is not consecrated just because the host is dropped into it. That's not a consecration. The wine is never consecrated. Right. But we call this a mass, uh, once again, because, well, I should say a mass of the priest sanctified because uh, the host has already been consecrated. So the phrase pre-sanctified. In any case, though, um, the very beginning of the liturgy, we see the priest and deacon and subdeacon uh, come to the altar in black vestments. Now, as we know, the Novus Ordo doesn't use black very much, if at all, and the newer Old Holy Week started to strip that away from us by putting the priest primarily in violet vestments on Good Friday, and only in black for a short period of time. Uh, now, black makes us think of death, and yeah, that's the point. Christ is dying today's Good Friday. So they come out in their black vestments, and they prostrate themselves in front of the altar, uh, during which time the altar boys put an altar cloth on the altar and light the, uh, actually they don't light the candles, but they, they put a, a, a cloth on the altar. And then the ministers stand and go right up to the epistle corner, the right side of the altar, and begin the um, opening collect. And then we see, uh, in a, well, actually, there's a lesson and then there's an, a, an epistle on top of it. So two lessons, if you will, and then a gospel, uh, the passion the passion of Christ. So we see something that looks sort of like a mass, but it's incredibly stripped. So as Father said, the uh, liturgy is very, it strips a lot of things as you get more into these penitential times. And Good Friday is perhaps in one way the most bare liturgy we have, but on the other hand, perhaps the most um, outstanding and the one that makes us most filled with awe as we're observing it. Uh, so certainly, that's something to, to, to meditate on is the, the, it's very stripped and yet it's very, uh, it's almost the most ornate as we'll see. So the, the passion is read, just like on Palm Sunday, it includes the last, does it? No, no, John doesn't mention it, but 
yeah, it, but the passion is read just like on Palm Sunday, this time from uh, John's gospel, and then Father might preach, and we continue with a series of collects or intercessions. Now, this is one of the most uh, affected parts of the liturgy when you're comparing the really old Good Friday with the newer uh, Missal. So, uh, one of them is the prayer for the Jews, and a lot of traditionalists point to this one uh, very frequently, that in the pre-55 Missal, we actually do not kneel when we pray for the Jews, whereas in the 55 liturgy, uh, it, the Jews are treated just like everyone else. Now, the reason why the pre-55 has wisely and prudently kept that kneeling away from the liturgy is because the Jews rejected Christ in the New Testament. And even though it is true that we want their conversion and we know at the, at the end of the world, they will convert uh, as we know from the scriptures. Uh, the fact is they have rejected Christ and they called the blood of Christ upon them at the passion. And what we pray for is normally what we're going to get. So that is sort of reflected in the liturgy. And then the other prayer that's very different is there's one in the pre-55 liturgy for the conversion of heretics and schismatics. But in the newer Missal, instead it refers to them, at, it basically prays for the unity of Christians. So it's much more, I guess we could say ecumenical. And if you read, I believe it was actually Bunini on the topic, uh, he goes into detail about why they did this. And it's definitely not uh, very comfortable for a traditionalist to, to see his writings on the topic. But we can see these things entering into the liturgy of the church already, even in the 50s. Uh, so this is, uh, that's a very unique part of the liturgy. And these sorts of intercessions used to be done all the time in the early days of the church. And um, some like Fortescue, for example, who is a well-known liturgist of old, uh, he thought that perhaps the reason why the Oremus is said during any normal mass uh, before the offertory is because they would follow with these sorts of intercessions before entering the offertory. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's good. And those solemn prayers that Brother mentioned, uh, which are, um, you know, for, you know, everything from, you know, the well-being of the church uh, to safe travel for, for people to obviously the conversion of schismatics and uh, heretics and so forth, the prayer for the Jews, which is uh, quite well known, um, sort of a controverted point. Um, they are heard in a special way on Good Friday. Um, Good Friday, if there is sort of the, the most merciful day of the year, it's Good Friday. Um, because never before has the Heavenly Father received such perfect satisfaction to his divine justice and such perfect worship and conformity of a human will with the divine will than on that day. And um, in a sense, his, his heart reaches out more than ever to the prayers of men. So on that day, join with those prayers. And um, there, it's a, it's just, there's a special opportunity on Good Friday, especially. Maybe you could mention the, uh, the notion of the veneration of the cross and what was called the creeping. If you could, uh, something which you don't find, I think, in the uh, post-55 liturgy. So the veneration of the cross and the creeping, if you could maybe mention what that is. Certainly. So the veneration of the cross is uh, basically what happens right after these collects that we just mentioned. And you'll notice that Father uh, will 
take off his chasuble and the uh, subdeacon will take off his folded chasuble and the priest will proceed to the altar and the deacon hands him the uh, cross that's covered in purple or black and the priest in three stages uncovers the entire cross and this cross has the crucified on it as well so he begins by uncovering the top portion of the cross towards the bottom of the the steps and he chants the ecce linum crucis behold the wood of the cross uh, and then the choir responds with the come let us adore and we all genuflect in adoration and then he proceeds to the very top of the altar called the predella where eventually he's uncovered the entire cross after a series of three unveilings uh, of the cross in parts. And these three unveilings actually are uh, to remind us of the three preaching of the three preachings of the cross by the apostles. So the first time when the apostles preached the cross uh, privately before the coming of the Holy Ghost, when they were in hiding, when they spoke to people privately about it. Um, the second one is when they spoke about the cross to the Jews. And of course, the Jews rejected the cross, so then they went to the Gentiles. So these three preachings of the cross. Uh, this triple unveiling can also remind us of the uh, making reparation for the triple insults that Christ received at, uh, number one, the house of, of Caiaphas, number two, the court of Pilate, and number three, on Calvary. So these are things we can meditate on, certainly, as we see this happen on Friday. Uh, eventually, the priest will put the cross on a pillow uh, at the bottom of the altar steps, and then he will take his shoes off with the deacon and subdeacon, which is a rather peculiar thing in the Roman rite. We don't see the shoes come off very often. And uh, this is a particularly important liturgy then. It's alerting us something rather different is going on already. Then you'll notice that the priest does a triple genuflection on both knees as he creeps towards the cross. So he will kneel down once and then twice and a third time and then kiss the foot of the cross. Then the deacon and subdeacon do the same and then the, the servers follow. Uh, so this is a, obviously a triple uh, way to you know, show reverence to the cross of Christ on the day he died. And traditionally, this is one of the things that, so to speak, replaces receiving Holy Communion on Good Friday, and that the, the focus is on the cross. Uh, not that it's taking away from the Blessed Sacrament at all, quite the opposite. Um, and so in any case, eventually then the people get to venerate the cross as well. Now, based on my knowledge, I don't think in the newer Old Holy Week that there's too much that's different. I think the triple genuflection is still done, although it may not be on both knees. Uh, I think there's something different about that. But certainly one difference is that uh, in the pre-55, the priest is the one that primarily handles the cross and the deacon, whereas in the newer Old Holy Week, the altar boys might carry the cross from the altar to the floor, which is uh, a little more unusual traditionally. So once again, we see the emphasis on the priest's role as a mediator between God and man when he brings the cross down to the people. Uh, and then, of course, like I said, then the, the faithful will have a chance to venerate the cross as well as the cross is then brought further towards, towards the communion rail. Very good. And then, of course, eventually um, we'll bring the, uh, the sepulcher, we'll bring our Lord back from the altar of repose and uh, 
and, and, and of course the priest will go through that, well, almost like uh, a ritual mass, um, as you said before earlier with the, uh, the chalice filled with unconsecrated wine, um, but you'll have the consecrated host uh, from the night before being used and consumed by the priest alone. So we're getting towards the end. So brother, maybe if you could, I know it's Easter Vigil is the biggest liturgy entire year, but is there, well, certainly maybe you could tell us it's, it's longer even than the long liturgy of the 1955 liturgy. How many readings, for example, or prophecies are there in the 55 liturgy versus the pre-55? So the, the, the 55 liturgy, the newer one, has only four prophecies in, from the Old Testament. And the older Holy Week, the pre-55, actually has 12. And if you read through those prophecies, they all refer some refers back to the idea of baptism or to being regenerated in the life of grace. And so it's all geared towards what historically would have been admitting catechumens into the church. Uh, but obviously, if we're all baptized, these are things we should all be meditating on on Easter Vigil as um, as we've all received that grace of baptism. We also see in go ahead, go ahead, sorry. Go we ahead. also see something uh, slightly before the prophecies that sort of connects this very well, namely the, the fire outside. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the deacon chants the exalted, he lights the paschal candle with the fire uh, from that you know, from outside that the, the priest blessed. So this idea of fire is also a reminder of our baptisms because one of the primary uh, things that baptism does for the soul is it enlightens the soul. And so then we go into the prophecies, the word of God, where we actually receive instruction on, on the faith uh, in light of perhaps catechumens entering into the church. So in regards to that Easter fire, could you explain at least what you might know about the reed, what's called the reed? So in the, in, the, in the 55 liturgy, a taper is used to directly light from the Easter fire the actual Paschal candle, the big sort of thick Paschal candle, which we had the exalted sun by. But in the pre-55, you don't write. You don't you light the paschal candle right away. You light what is called a reed. Can you explain maybe what that is and its significance, perhaps? Certainly. So the uh, I guess the best way to explain it is that in the newer Old Holy Week, you'll like Father said, you actually start with a paschal candle outside and bring it in. So there's a really big focus on this big paschal candle uh, when we're processing in with it. The deacon holds it and everyone genuflects to it like three times. Uh, when he sings Lumen Christi, and then eventually he puts it in the center of the sanctuary, which is rather a bit peculiar for the Roman rite to put the Paschal candle in the center of the, the sanctuary. <clears throat> in the pre-55 liturgy, the Paschal candle begins unlit in the sanctuary. No one's in the church. We're all outside at the fire, and as Father said, there's the triple reed, so basically three candles that are uh, all connected into one, one branch, one stem. And <clears throat> as you enter the church, and we stop three times to chant the Lumen Christi, the deacon lights one of those three candles each time. And obviously this reminds us of the Trinity. Uh, the, when we receive grace at our baptisms, of course, it's the life of the Trinity in our souls. 
So there's a lot of symbolism to, to think about there. Uh, and then he eventually will light the Paschal candle when he chants the exalted. And it simply makes more sense this way, as the exalted actually mentions uh, things like lighting the fire and it mentions blessing the grains of incense. So all these things that happen outside during the newer Holy Week were actually do during the exalted as they're mentioned in the pre-55 Holy Week. So the words of the exalted actually mean something to us a little more as we watch the deacon do exactly what he sings. Mm -hmm. Now, what about um, uh, the notion of the baptismal font? It seems, if I remember, when I did the 55 liturgy, we blessed not the baptismal font, but we just had like a, like a big sort of container of, of, of water that we made Easter water and baptism water, but in the sanctuary. But in the old pre-55, we seem to actually process solemnly to the actual Baptist baptistry area. So have you read about that or looked into that at all in terms of the significance of? Well, certainly. So the, the baptismal font, as, as, as we know in a traditional church, uh, such as Our Lady of Lords, think about how it's, it has its own place, its own designated place. And so in the newer Old Holy Week, when you actually bring water into the sanctuary, and by the way, the priest actually faces the, the, the people to bless the water in the newer Old Holy Week, as he blesses the, the tub of water, uh, there's just an, a very odd thing going on. Is something very foreign to the Roman Rite that we've never seen before. And we all know probably exactly what the uh, liturgical uh, recovators were trying to do, but there's a solemn procession, as Father said, to the baptismal font in the pre-55 liturgy, and there are chants of the litany of saints eventually, which actually used to be sung many times in a row. The, it actually would be repeated three times, and each one of those times it was sung many times, so in all you would chant the litany of saints uh, probably about 10 times or so. And of course, there are many baptisms, but there's something incredibly solemn about this moment in the Easter Vigil. So you'll actually see, uh, even if you can't see Father physically while he's doing it, he will make many uh, gestures over the water as he blesses it. He reminds us again of the cross, so the sacrificial nature of the liturgy. And he will breathe on the water with what's called a, a sigh, which is a Greek symbol that uh, in the Roman rite would make us think of the Holy Ghost. There's a sort of epiclesis that happens over the baptismal water when he dips the paschal candle into it three times. And then, as I said, he breathes on the water. Uh, and the mass, of course, epiclesis is when the Holy Ghost comes on the, the offerings before the consecration. Uh, so uh, in the Easter Vigil, we see this again. And uh, the newer Old Holy Week sort of breaks the litany of saints in half so that we can renew our baptismal promises. And so there's this emphasis on us. And, it, you know, the priest is facing the people, and then we stop so that we renew our baptismal promises. And in and of itself, of course, renewing your baptismal promises is something we should all do frequently. But there didn't seem to be any purpose for inserting this here. So there's a destruction of this really, really sacred moment of the vigil where you're blessing the baptismal water that will be used throughout the year. And, uh, of course, the procession. Not to mention the holy chrism and oils poured into the baptismal water, uh, the oil of catechumens and the sacred chrism. Right. 
It's a beautiful liturgy to say the least. And I wish we could go more into it. Brother has been such a, done such a wonderful job. Um, but uh, I think we're going to start going to questions. Did you want to say any last thing, any last observation about the Easter vision before we take questions? I know it's kind of rushing through the most important liturgy of the entire year, but we're running up on time. So is there anything else you wanted to mention about Easter Vigil that sort of strikes you? Well, I, I suppose the, the biggest thing that people probably like to know about Vigil is when Easter actually starts. And there is an interesting, I've read multiple things on the matter. And one of the most interesting things I've read is that uh, the Vigil Mass uh, doesn't actually begin until the Gloria. So at a normal Mass, uh, so the prayers at the foot of the altar are considered more preparation for the Mass, even though they're, they're part of the Missal and you have to do them. The Mass itself doesn't start until the introit. But in the uh, Vigil Mass, there actually is not an introit. So the Gloria begins the Mass. And so it's at that point we think we would say Easter begins. Uh, but note that Vespers occurs at the end of Easter Vigil. Uh, which is actually a Vespers of joy, but it never once mentions the resurrection itself. So once again, note the, the fluctuation between the joy of Easter and still this anticipation of the risen Christ to come in the morning. So there's a rejoicing still. Um, but in any case, Easter would begin at the Gloria and there are the bells and the, the lights are all, all turned on, the light of Christ enters the world. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing to note about the vigil. Wonderful. Thank you, brother.